as is our way of teaching in this retreat, uh, I'll be teaching tonight on joy, this way of threading our, the different uh, qualities of the Brahma Vihara together. Uh, and we'll be practicing with, the, uh, with joy tomorrow morning. So I want to, first of all, set joy in the uh, context of the Brahma Vihara in terms of these four teachings. Excuse me? Is anyone having problems hearing? Okay, you are. So why don't you come a little closer? I was speaking softly. Okay. 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 So this is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh on the Brahma Vihara. The four Brahma Vihara, or immeasurable minds as he calls them, are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They are called immeasurable because if you practice them, they will grow in you every day until they embrace the whole world. You will become happier and everyone around you will become happier also. If you learn how to practice the four immeasurable minds, you will know how to heal the illnesses of anger, sorrow, insecurity, sadness, hatred, loneliness, and unhealthy attachments. If they are practiced with the seven factors of awakening, the Four Noble Truths, and the Noble Eightfold Path, we will arrive at awakening, deep awareness of the truth of phenomena. The four immeasurable minds are the four aspects of true love within ourselves and with everyone and everything. And this is, I'll give one other expression of the Brahma Vihara. This is from uh, one of my students, uh, Chuck Squire. And this is uh, his poem about the Brahma Vihara. And he's using the Pali words metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. So this is his poem in honor of the Brahma Vihara. When the mind is filled with thoughts that really aren't so useful, metta is betta. <laughs> When you open up your heart to the sorrows of the world, you'll find karuna suna. <laughs> when you find that you can't share the joy of another's good fortune, remember mudita isvita. When the winds of the world can't blow you astray, you've got heka upeka. Okay, so that, that sets everything in context, right? So... I wanted to say a few more words about how these uh, uh, Brahma Viharas interfuse, and particularly talking about the relationship between uh, compassion and joy, which is very interesting. And we've already looked uh, some at that relationship in terms of talking about how sometimes Anna was talking last night about how in the act of compassion there can be also uh, joy arising from that situation. I was reflecting on that and just reflecting on a few ways that that uh, manifests. Um, 
One is actually in some of the traditional teachings. There's a very interesting teaching which we used as the basis for our one-month retreat at Spirit Rock a few years ago. It's a teaching called Transcendental or Liberative Dependent Origination. It's a somewhat esoteric teaching. Dependent origination is the better known teaching, which is about the, um, really the way that in more detail that suffering is produced you know, from ignorance and from confused, compulsive grasping and pushing away. And the uh, model of liberative dependent origination is more about how freedom comes about. So it's an interesting model. One of the most interesting aspects of it is that the starting point for the movement of liberation is having a different relationship to suffering. This is really where the path starts. It's basically when suffering becomes workable. When we see I don't need to be caught in those old patterns, or at least I get glimpses of that at times. And when that occurs, there can be a deep emotional response. Oh my gosh, that which I previously thought I was stuck in is workable. And in the teaching, it said that what follows directly from that shift of attitude in relation to suffering is faith and then joy and then rapture. That out of a different relation to suffering come these beautiful qualities. And I, I know we've all experienced something like that, you know, where something were, which first maybe felt like a, a trap or eternal damnation soon became uh, something else. So very, very interesting. And I was also reflecting on how there are times when we may, as an honest story, visiting with your your aunt, right? And visiting the aunt, that uh, something can come out of that. And I thought I would read a poem which is actually quite similar. This is from a very close friend of mine named uh, Bonnie Morrissey. And this is about uh, her being with her mother as her mother was dying. And listen for both the compassion and the joy. The moon is not a sea, is the name of the poem. The moon is not a sea for Christo tonight No sacrifice is yet required. Rather, the moon is a D for Dios, promising fulfillment. But more, she is a cradle, tipped down and resting on her back, bottom heavy, lit to hold a solstice baby or an old woman dying. Something is arriving. My mother pats the back of my head as I weep on her shoulder. It's okay, she whispers. Much like what we were exploring earlier. It's okay. The dying comfort the living. Blood bond pulses between us as the spaces between her breaths widen. 
the vigil begins. I listen for each breath through the long night as she once listened for mine. We are birthing into this bright cradle of night. My brother points to the North Star, tells me how the whole sky revolves, and I see it again as if for the first time, that great timeless whirl of, ex of existence. That star was always right there, he assures me. How could I not be certain each time I walk out in the dark of what guides and orients, where to turn, and what step to take towards the light? I was also reflecting on uh, when I was with my father when he was dying, and it was actually relatively a, uh, a peaceful and grace-filled death, but of course there, were, there was pain and uh, sadness. I remember being with him, he was, he was dying, and I was actually right near the end of finishing a book. And as he was there, and actually not so conscious, I told him, I just finished another chapter. And he smiled so widely. <laughs> and that's, that, that has really uh, stayed with me, that there was joy in the midst of that, in the midst of that process. Mm. And I also was reflecting on uh, working a lot with Joanna Macy, who actually teaches a lot, the, something like the other directionality, we might say, of moving from joy to compassion. That in a lot of her work, which is often to open up to the difficulties of the world, or it could be the difficulties of a, an organization or a community, that before going into the difficulties, we first connect with joy and appreciation. And that gives a kind of lightening of the heart, which then permits, let's say, uh, an organization to go into the hard stuff that it needs to face. And I've, I've appreciated that skillfulness. So it's interesting, isn't it, how these are related to each other. And we'll be continuing to, to look at that. It's interesting to focus on uh, joy because um, some of us may have heard the classical teachings of the Buddha and heard a lot about suffering and not so much about joy. Anyone raise their hand to that? <laughs> we have the Four Noble Truths, which are about the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of what the uh, end of suffering and the truth of the way of the end of suffering. It's all couched in terms of suffering. And, and yet the, uh, the Buddha was all also known very much as a, one of joy. He was, one of his uh, names was the happy one. And there was a quality of joy that emanated from him and from many of the monastics with him. And this is, a, this is a passage. This is from the Dhammapada. Drink deeply. These are the words of the Buddha. Drink deeply. Live in serenity and joy. The wise person delights in the truth and follows the law, the law of the awakened. 
And there is this quality of joy that's, that's emphasized a lot. Thich Nhat Hanh had to have a whole section of a book written especially for Westerners in which he said, suffering is not enough. <laughs> There's joy too. And in fact, when I, when I uh, first met Thich Nhat Hanh, which was I think 1987, I think I was in Massachusetts for that time. That was, I think that was the time when I heard your talk. I spent time, I heard Anna's first Dharma talk in 1987. I won't say more about it, but it was, it was inspiring for me in many ways. I was a retreatant. And, and then I went to um, a, I, don't, I may have got the sequence not quite right, but it was, I think it was more or less the same time. I went to a retreat. Um, uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh and for the hardcore meditators there was some skepticism. The longest meditation periods were 20 minutes. There was talking. There were a lot of kids around. There was a lot of mingling. We showed, they showed movies. <laughs> you know, and, and yet the joy was immense and there was also a lot of uh, play and a sense, uh, I got two things, I got joy and I got a sense there was a tremendous uh, uh, sense of interdependence because that's, that's a lot of what he taught. He taught how he would teach and he would, he would often have the kids up and he would hold up an orange and he said, do you see this orange? And the kids would say, yes. Can you see the cloud in the orange? And they would say, yes. <laughs> Can you see the orange tree in the orange? Yes. <laughs> and it would go like that. The adults, it took a lot longer to learn that sort of thing. And, but it was, it was about joy and it was also, it was about that sense of interrelationship, uh, which is actually, I'll bring that up later, it is actually a big part of joy. It's actually, in a sense, uh, not being caught in our own skulls, so to speak and having that uh, expansiveness that we practice here. Here's another expression of joy. This is from Winnie the Pooh. It shows Pooh walking with Piglet down the road. What day is it, asked Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. <laughs> so that's deep, you have to let that sit with you a while. <laughs> there, there are quite a few ways to develop joy and I, I was reflecting that I think about, I don't know, five or six years ago, I took a month and I did a retreat on the Brahma Vihara. I did about uh, roughly a week on each of them. I actually started out uh, with equanimity practice because I, I had been reading a lot in the Tibetan tradition. And in Tibet, when they do these four practices, they actually start with equanimity because it carries the wisdom and they want the wisdom to be there. And so I practiced and did, uh, I think, two days of equanimity practice and then a week of metta and um, karuna or compassion practice, mudita or 
sympathetic joy practice, and then about five days of equanimity. And uh, with, with joy, with the practice of joy, I found I, I did it in three main ways. One of them is the mudita practice, which we do with phrases, which um, we'll have the instructions on tomorrow morning. And then uh, a second was just really being more open to the sense of joy in the moment. Tuning into the joy and sometimes seeking out the joy, just the joy with a tree or the joy with the sky or the joy with uh, a meal and so forth. And it was often just tuning into the delight that was available each moment. It's another beautiful way to practice joy. And a third was gratitude practice, which is really closely related to to mudita practice. With the mudita practice, we repeat phrases and we'll we'll give a handout uh, tomorrow morning and they're, they're very similar forms of, it's a very similar form of practice uh, to metta and karuna, her compassion practice. And one repeats lines, the lines that I came to like, again, related to, to others and, and to oneself would be, it would be first to really tune in to what's going well with someone's life. Much as with compassion practice, we tune in to what's not going so well. With mudita practice, we tune in to what's going well in someone's life. We might, before we practice with a given person, we might reflect for two or three minutes what's going well with this person's life, what's going well with my, the life of my benefactor, what's going well with me, with me, what's going well with my difficult person, God forbid. No, God is forbid. <laughs> and we would, um, and it's, it's a very uh, simple practice in that sense, but it actually um, really goes against the grain of contemporary culture quite a bit. And I would say that mudita practice is probably the least practiced of any of these. It's not taught that much. It's not practiced so much, and yet it has so much to offer. It really goes against several main forms of conditioning. It goes against the conditioning to be primarily concerned with my well-being. To really be focused in a self-centered way on my own happiness. And not to give so much attention to others. It reverses that. It says, let me tune in to the well-being of others. The Dalai Lama says, that if you do this, your chances for happiness are increased by about seven billion times. <laughs> and it's an interesting practice, you know, like, do you remember that quotation I read two nights ago? Well, you might not, you, it was the first day and I don't know what state we were in, but, but the, uh, it was about the person who was sitting up in the hills looking down on everyone and thinking, oh, I can connect with this person's happiness. And it's like, it's actually, it's actually going back to our natural state. You know, you, we know this with children, right? Children often, children have to learn to prefer their own happiness, right? Because originally, and this is really the way the limbic system works in terms of the brain, we resonate with other people's beings. 
right? And mudita practice is like a relearning of that capability of resonating with others and the ability to tune in to what's going well. So one conditioning that this reverses is the conditioning to prefer and focus only on one's own happiness or primarily. Or it might be only to focus on my small group's happiness. And again, the direction of the practice of joy or mudita is towards all beings. It's towards going beyond the narrow circle of care. And that narrow circle of care can coexist with um, lack of compassion towards others. We can have deep concern for our own circle and no concern outward. I've actually seen some of the home movies of the Nazi uh, uh, commandants from the camps, from the death camps. And they were playing with their children. Everything seemed beautiful. You would hardly know what they were doing. We, we can compartmentalize, can't we? And so the mudita goes in this other direction. And it's a practice, which means we learn, we develop, we see where we come up against constraints. The, the second important conditioning that it goes against is the conditioning to focus on problems, right? Rather than what's ongoing well. Does anyone relate to this one? <laughs> okay, just about a quarter of the group relate to it. Or at least a quarter of the group have raised their hands, right? Okay. And it's actually, and so for me, as someone who tended to, tends to focus, my conditioning was to focus on problems, right? I told you, you know, that, you know, in terms of doing metta, my conditioning was to be a good analytical problem-solving person, right? But I would tend to focus on the problems. And, you know, this be one way this became really apparent um, a while ago, probably 20 years ago or so, uh, this is a very stark example that really stayed with me. I was organizing, along with a few others, a summer gathering for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we had about 100 people. And it was a wonderful event with uh, Joanna Macy and Robert Aitken Roshi, a Zen teacher from Hawaii, and Sulak Savaraksha from Thailand. And we had other, other friends from Thailand as well. And it um, seemed to be going very well. And midway through, we did a questionnaire, just a little, a few questions for people. Just give us some feedback, how it's going. And we read them. We got 100 pieces of feedback. 97 were very positive. Three were somewhat critical. All of the organizers zoomed in on the three <laughs> and were preoccupied by them for quite some time. No. Hopefully, I, after practicing mudita more, I wouldn't do that in the same way. But isn't, we know that, don't we? We know that. And you know, some of it's connected with our survival systems. You know, and our, you know, you know, our radar wants to look for problems, right? Or where is the saber-toothed tiger? <laughs> you know, where is it? You know, and so forth. So, um, so mudita practice and joy practice counters it. So it's an amazing practice for anyone who tends to be... Uh, Judgmental, overly critical, going to the problems. I won't ask for hands. 
it's a wonderful practice in that way. And I have found it very, very useful. And it can be done, again, in different forms, as I mentioned. Um, it's interesting to really uh, look at the cultivation of joy. The finding of the sages is that joy is there for us. And we can certainly look in the mudita practice, we look to see where things are going well in a more conventional sense. But there's also a sense in which uh, joy is our birthright. And when we're clear and when we're not scared, joy manifests very naturally. There, in the Hindu tradition, the ultimate nature of reality is said to be Sat Chidananda. Sat is being. Chit is related to knowledge. And Ananda is bliss. On that understanding, joy and bliss are woven into the very nature of our universe and the very nature of our being at our depths. And we can taste this. This is certainly the finding of the Buddha. We can taste this in our practice. We can sometimes find that uh, quality when simply to be brings joy. Simply to look at a flower. Maybe it comes out in certain moments. We look at a flower. We look at a tree. And sometimes it doesn't even need that external reference point. Sometimes we can experience that inner glow of joy. And certainly as the mind quiets and as we deepen in our practice, there are moments of that and sometimes many moments of that. And I'm sure we've all had those moments where there simply was an inner joy. And this is actually the deeper teaching about joy that although practices can help us, joy is actually deeper than the conditioning. Joy is there in, our, in the depths of our being. And we can experience that, and sometimes for long, sustained periods of time when we're practicing. And it can be there no matter what's happening. It's interesting. I, one experience that I had, which was very um, powerful for me, was when I was doing a longer retreat. And I was very happy to be there on the retreat. This is just something about <clears throat> really this being what I deeply wanted to do to cultivate these qualities. And one morning, I hadn't slept well. I was irritated. My body didn't feel good. And I had a lot of joy. <laughs> I said, whoa. And I didn't try to make it happen. It just was there. I was just, there just was an underlying joy, even with that stuff happening. Isn't that interesting? Right? Isn't that interesting that that can be there sometimes? And it really points to how there can be 
something deeper that holds everything. As with the other practices, when we're practicing mudita, we do invite and a certain kind of purification as we've been focused on things that stand in the way of joy manifest. We see them. And it's interesting to reflect. Uh, If you had to reflect right now, what stands in the way of joy for you? Anything in your life? Just reflect for a moment on that. What makes joy hard to manifest in your life? And maybe just to uh, say in a sentence or a word what, what occurs to you. What stands in the way of joy? What makes joy hard? What would you say? Anyone? Myself. Myself. Yeah. Yeah. Busyness. What? Busyness. Busyness. How many can relate to that? (laughs) Busyness stands in the way of joy. Myself, I remember, it made me think of the, uh, Alan Watts' autobiography was called In My Own Way. Double entendre. (laughs) Other, other, uh, what else stands in the way of joy? Expectations, right? Yeah. Being preoccupied in some way, right? What else? Control. Control, right? Wanting to control things for whatever reason. It, it's harder, you know, if we're, we're, again, if we're preoccupied in that way, it's harder for that natural joy to bubble up. What else? Fear. Fear, yeah, very much. Being in the future. Being in the future, thinking about the future, or thinking about the past, right? Being preoccupied, you know, sometimes maybe the dominance of the preoccupied mind, right? Makes it harder for joy to be there. Maybe one or two more? Anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Shame. 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 We could add uh, aspects of self-judgment or judging others, right? All of these make, make it harder for joy to be there. And as we practice, each of us will encounter what stands in the way of joy. Some of it in the mudita practice, some of it in just in giving more attention to this in our lives. I remember in teaching Mudita once, someone came up to me and said, and said, when I was a child, my mother told me continually, wipe that smile off your face. Yipes. Right. So there, there's a lot there. There's a lot of grief in that, and really feeling that, feeling that that can be there. So I mentioned that I found three ways of practicing joy on that retreat. and. 
One of them is the mudita practice. Again, another is finding joy just in the movement of, of daily life. Another is gratitude practice. I want to talk a little bit about each of those. We'll look at the, the mudita practice more. The, you know, the lines that I used again were, may your joy continue, may your joy increase, may your joy shine. You could say, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it shine. And I would say that, I would tune, I would tune in to someone's happiness and then just say those. And when we do the practice, sometimes we feel that joy, sometimes something else comes up. We might be doing uh, practice with someone who maybe has some part of his or her life together, an area that I don't have together, so to speak, right? And I might say, may your joy continue. No. <laughs> may your joy increase. <laughs> Why don't you give some of it to me? <laughs> you know, and, and so we run against the versions of the near enemies or near opposites or near misses for mudita and the far enemy. The far enemy is envy. That come, will come up, right? That will come up at times. Or we, we do the, do it for our difficult person. And we tune into the good parts and may your, may your joy continue. May your joy obliterate all your obnoxious qualities. <laughs> you know, so have you noticed there, humor is very helpful in these practices because sometimes interesting things happen, right? In the practice, we find ourselves saying things like that, especially with the difficult person, right? That's where, you know, where there is a kind of, have you noticed the, what we might call Brahma Vihara bargaining <laughs> with the difficult person? <laughs> you know, where we say, um, I'll offer you metta, but you have to really change some. <laughs> so that's normal. It's okay. So, and then the, uh, the near enemy is interesting. It's a kind of attachment to one's joy. It's attached, you know, the, it's often translated as exuberance, which has always struck me as a little bit strange because I think of exuberance positively, but I think it's a kind of um, inflated joy or an attached joy where we, we really think, oh, I'm so cool. I have so much joy. And there is some joy there, but there's some distortion. Yeah. And we could also see how that kind of mudita might be disconnected from compassion or from metta. It might be overly self-centered. That's again, we'll come back to this theme a lot that the, the interweaving of the four is very important. You know, and that you can see how joy would be so beneficial to people in the helping professions, right? Where there's a tendency towards burnout or activists, right? A regular joy practice, very crucial. You look at the lives of people like Dr. King, they had ways, particularly through the black church, of going into joy in the midst of all the challenges, going into the singing, going into after very difficult time, going into a song like uh, a spiritual, like I have a bomb in Gilead. Some of you may know that, just beautiful. And so I think that uh, a beautiful practice for anyone who works with, with difficulty. 
And then there, there is the joy that we can practice here, and I, I would encourage, I'll encourage us tomorrow, to see what brings up the joy, to tune into the joy. A lot of this is tuning in. I know James Barras teaches a whole course called Awakening Joy, which some of you have done, and I've had a lot of students have taken that uh, and, and profited from it. And I know a lot of the key for joy practice is actually tuning in to the joy that's there, but we don't quite notice. Or we're preoccupied, or we're thinking a lot. And some of the practice will be just to tune in to the simple joys of the meal, of seeing, of just staying, of slowing down, of being with experience. You know, to tune into the natural world, to tune into that which brings joy. Just to see, see what that is. There's also a practice of gratitude, which is quite interesting. Some people have nominated gratitude to be the fifth Brahma-vihara. I don't know who they've nominated it to. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Classically, when one did mudita, it was called sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. And sympathetic, like a sympathetic string of an instrument, there's a resonance with, uh, with another. And uh, it was thought especially to be able to cut through self-centeredness. And the practice would be, uh, was done classically first with someone who's very happy, analogously to how we worked with compassion, and then going through the categories. But one category is left out. Guess which one it is? The self, right? Classically, one did not do mudita practice with the self, because they thought it would develop too much self-centeredness. Virtually all Western teachers are in unanimity that our culture and we need mudita for self, or need some version of it. And one version of it is gratitude. It's quite wonderful that we can do gratitude practice. And it's in a way tuning in to what's joyful in my life. Tuning into the different things. There are a lot of ways to do gratitude practice. I, I do gratitude practice just for a minute or two, four times a day usually. And I just say, what am I grateful for right now? And sometimes, usually it's, it's small, I'm grateful for the meal, I'm grateful I slept well, or I'm grateful for being here. And just tuning into that and staying with that a while, the wonderful practice. One can also, and we'll look at this some tomorrow, one can cultivate gratitude by reflecting on the main things in one's life that one's grateful for. Writing them down, maybe you have eight things, ten things, and then spending ten minutes with them every day. Wonderful practice. I did that for a few years. And again, gratitude practice, like the mudita general, generally, is very good for people who tend to look at the negative. Doing gratitude practice. And I, I have to say one thing. Uh, it doesn't get in the way of using one's uh, discriminating mind to see clearly. It doesn't, uh, you know, but more helps us to use that discriminating mind wise more wisely. 
And so one can have that list of what one's grateful for and remember that. It's interesting, there's also a connection between gratitude and kindness. In the tradition, gratitude was especially there because of the uh, kindness that has been given one. It could be the kindness of another person or it could be the kindness of the earth, the kindness of one's parents, the kindness of one's ancestors. So it's a direct relationship between metta and gratitude in that sense. There's all sorts of research that shows that people who do gratitude practice have all sorts of medical benefits. There's interesting research that's done at the, uh, the, uh, the main researchers at the University of California, Davis. And let me, let me find this, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. So this will convince you to do gratitude practice tomorrow. <laughs> okay. People who kept daily gratitude journals exercise more regularly. <laughs> complained of fewer illness symptoms and felt better about their lives overall compared with those who didn't do daily, uh, daily gratitude, uh, kept daily gratitude journals. Participants who kept gratitude lists were more likely to have made progress towards important personal goals. <laughs> A daily at gratitude intervention with young adults resulted in higher reported levels of uh, alertness, enthusiasm, determination, attentiveness, and energy <laughs> compared to a focus group uh, that didn't show such qualities, and so forth. In a sample of adults with neuromuscular disease, a 21-day gratitude intervention re resulted in greater amounts of high-energy positive moods, a greater sense of feeling connected to others, more optimistic ratings of one's life, and better sleep duration and sleep quality relative to a control group. Interesting, isn't it? So there's this beautiful, these beautiful practices. Gratitude is really, I think, a version of mudita practice. And so as we, as we do this practice, as the mudita and joy become more mature, there are certain um, aspects of the mudita that, that develop. It, it can be there uh, in the midst of difficulties. You know, we can we can experience the sense of uh, joy even when there are difficulties. You know, as I found in my experience, and people who often deal with very stressful situations can also have a certain amount of joy. There's a beautiful song uh, from the Jewish tradition. Uh, some of you may know it. It's from the Rabbi Nachman of Breslau. And this is the song. Rabbi Nachman of Breslau used to say, friends do not despair. A difficult time has come upon us. Our joy must fill the air. We must not lose our joy of living. We must not despair, for a difficult time is upon us. Our joy must fill the air. Hmm. Wow. So that's one mark as the joy gets deeper. It can be with difficulty and not be um, left behind. As the joy gets deeper, it interpenetrates with the metta, with the compassion, with the equanimity, takes on the quality of wisdom. I think I'll just end with 
Let me see. Uh, two really short lines, short poems, and <clears throat> they're both from the native tradition. There's a certain simple joy. Ultimately, joy is very simple and basic, I think. And it can be there as we, as we practice more, as it develops more, as we open to it more. It can be there in a very simple way, almost in our bodies, in, our, in ourselves. And these were, these were two expressions that, I, that I, have been dear to me from the native tradition. The first is from the Eskimo. It's from an Eskimo shaman. And she says, the great sea has sent me adrift. It moves me as the weed in a great river. Earth and the great weather move me, have carried me away, and move my inward parts with joy. And then some of you may know this. Uh, I think I saw this visiting in uh, northern New Mexico, you know, in the um, Navajo land. This is, this is well known. You may know this. This is the, a, uh, a saying of what's sometimes called the beauty way. And I didn't mention so much, but touching beauty is a key way of opening to joy, being with art, with music, with natural beauty. And as we might have seen with the metta chant, this, this was the chant of the beauty way. Really, we could say the chant of the way of joy. Walk with dignity. With beauty may I walk. With beauty before me may I walk. With beauty behind me may I walk. With beauty above me may I walk. With beauty all around me may I walk. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, lively may I walk. So this is our this is our practice that maybe we'll I think we'll invite to weave in a little bit as we continue with the compassion practice through to 9 a.m. and then we'll bring in the joy in a more focused way at that point. So thank you kindly for your attention. And I think we'll do as we did last night. We'll uh, have the last sitting be 10 minutes earlier, so we can ring the bell. This Melanie, right? Uh, can ring the bell at 8.40 and we'll come in at 8.50, 10 to 9, and we'll finish earlier okay, with the chanting. Thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.